Have you ever sat through a Relief Society lesson? Heard an inspirational story about a woman who was born decades or even centuries before you? Then wondered how in the world could her life possibly be relevant to yours? Well, that's what this podcast is all about. You'll hear parts of some prominent talks given by women throughout the history of the church. Hopefully, along the way, you'll be able to see how their experiences can apply to you. Welcome to the Latter-day Saint Women Podcast. I'm your host, Shaylin Back, and today I have two very special guests with us. The first is James Goldberg, who's a writer and historian with the Church History Department. Welcome, James. Hi, thanks. And we also have Katie joining us again. She is a stay-at-home mom of two, and she has read all the talks in the book At the Pulpit and um, has come with questions and experiences as we discuss the talks. And today we are talking about a talk given by Judy Brummer, and this was given in Salt Lake City in 2012 at a fireside, and it's called Our Father in Heaven Has a Mission for Us. And she's actually given this talk hundreds of times, and if you haven't listened to it, you have to. It's so, so good to just hear her accent and her personality. It's really fun. So, James, before we start uh, talking more about Judy and her talk, how about let's hear your some of your background so as a historian and writer working with the church history department, I do a lot of things helping make history accessible to members of the church. And one of those projects I've been working on right now that I'm really excited about is called the Global Histories Project, where we write short histories of the church in each country. Uh, and people can just find that in their gospel library app in the church history section. But yeah, I recently worked on South Africa. We did some short documentaries as well about church members and church history in South Africa. So yeah, I'm kind of bringing that experience to this. Okay, so we got the right person here with us today. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Judy. What's her story and her and her background? Judy Bester Brummer. She tells a lot of this story in the talk. You can actually get details mm-hmm. uh, just reading it or listening to it about where she's from. But she grows up in very rural South Africa on a big homestead. She says... It was so big she thought her dad just owned the world because mm-hmm. uh, everywhere you would look, it was just part of their kind of ranch. They they had sheep, goats, some cattle, and then later moved to cities on the coast, like in college, got a job there, joined the church as a young adult. One of sort of the key places she'd fit into church history is she's one of the very early missionaries as the church in South Africa is starting to spread from being almost entirely a, a white church to establishing more more branches in black majority areas. And one thing you've got to understand about South African history is from 1948 to 1994, which is 14 years after she serves her mission, they're under some laws called apartheid, where there's actual legal restrictions, right? Like if you're black, you need a pass to be in the white part of town, right? Wow. And and there's all kinds of, of restrictions in the way things are set up. So it's a very divided country by race, at the time the church decides we really need to integrate and step out. And she's really right at the beginning of that process. So Judy, she's white, and Mm -hmm. she says that she has a white Methodist mom who taught her Mormon doctrine, which I think is so neat because she just felt like she was prepared for the church. She gives the example of the Godhead being three separate beings. She believed that before it was taught to her in like a Latter-day Saint setting. Right. I remember when I was on my uh, mission, there was one member who talked to us and said, you know, 
when it says in the scriptures, missionaries are there for the harvest, you don't realize how true that is, right? Mm-hmm. You can't grow everybody and, and prepare them. You've just got to be there to find the people the Lord's already prepared. And I think Judy Bester Brummer is an example of that, where she, one of the main questions in her talk is, how was the Lord <laughs> working in her life long before she ever found the church? and preparing her for the kind of specific work she does, not only in the church as a disciple of Christ and accepting teachings of the restoration, but in helping bring the gospel to the Kosa people in South Africa. That's one of the big sort of native South African groups. Nelson Mandela, mm-hmm. uh, for example, would be from that Kosa people. And so, so, yeah, she's looking back at her life a long time before she joined the church at and how was she prepared? Well, and how you're saying they were so divided. She grew up with, you know, blacks as part of her family. She said she had three black moms and, or yeah, three yeah, black yeah. moms, one white mother. And I love that because you talk about them being divided, but it seems like it was never like that for her and her family, you know. Yeah, what happens, so she lives in a very rural part of South Africa. So they're really, I mean, they're the only white people around. Mm -hmm. And then these other, these black moms she talks about are are people who are working for the family. Mm -hmm. But yeah, from the time she was a kid, she says she doesn't remember, her family was of British descent, so she learned English instead of Afrikaans. That's Mm -hmm. the kind of Dutch-related South African language, a lot of Dutch-descended people there. The Brummer family, actually, her husband's family, are Afrikaans speakers, but she learned English. She says she doesn't remember learning Kosa <laughs> because it, the, the only other kids to play with, right, are <laughs> Kosa speakers working for the family, that these three women who are helping raise her along with her mom are. One thing that's interesting, though, is that as the government is trying to divide people, right, and say we're going to keep separate, the requirement normally, uh, if you lived in a rural area, was that age six she had to come to boarding school so that you would grow up and be socialized in a sort of white-only environment. Mm -hmm. And Judy was an interesting exception to that because her mom was college-educated, which was very rare at the time. She talks about this in the talk. So she was able to stay home till she was 10, gave a little more time for that language to solidify. So yeah, that's a a different life experience that she had than than most South Africans are going to have at this time, where maybe Mm -hmm. they've never really spent time with somebody in that same kind of intimate setting. Well, and I, I, I just thought it was cute the part where she was saying, you know, when we, as women, we grow older, we kind of turn into our moms. And I loved when she said, we turn to our mothers as we get older. When she was cooking, she turned into Maggie, who's the cook. When she was cleaning, she turned into Jane. When she did laundry, she turned into Lizzie. And then when she was giving instructions, she turned into her white mom. I just thought <laughs> that was cute because she like saw a piece of each of them because they yeah, had Fraser. I love that. modeling, different influence. Yeah, that's cool. Mm-hmm. And because of this influence that she had as a child, it really set her up for her lifetime of missionary work. And I just love when she describes her life at the time that she met the missionaries. Um, yeah. She she had this glamorous job, I guess, that <laughs> she said it was underworked and overpaid and she could just finish in an hour or two and just go to the beach. <laughs> and she worked for Christian Dior um, Cosmetics. And uh-huh. so she said... Her friends always smelled like that, that like that perfume too, because she got all the tester bottles, and so she and her friends decided to uh, go to church to thank God for the blessing of her job. <laughs> and it just, I thought it was funny because they'd try a different church every Sunday and say, "Okay, we're never going back to that one," just because it was boring and they just didn't connect. And then one day, the missionaries knocked on the door, 
Mm-hmm. And do either of you remember what happened when the missionaries came knocking? And they came knocking and she opened the door and the one sister was like so nervous and she's like, we're from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Do you want to know more about us? And she said that she turned to her roommate and she had just let a homeless guy in like previously and she's like, don't ever let like a weirdo in here again. <laughs> and so <clears throat> she turned to her friend and said, hey, do you guys want to hear more about the morbid church? And I laughed so hard at that part because I'm like, Because her was friend, cute. I think she spit out her watermelon. They were laughing yeah. so hard. But then yep. she had the thought like, don't laugh at them because you yes. wouldn't be able to do the things that these girls are doing. And so they, she said, please come on in. Yeah. Right. I think you see this interesting tension in her. Uh, and, and even in that moment, between sort of wanting to live this this nice, easy life mm-hmm. and joke with friends and that kind of thing. But, and again, anywhere on earth, right, we're going to be aware sometimes of the economic differences between people and how hard some people have to live while others, I mean, like she says, through sort of no effort of her own, she mm-hmm. just landed this job where she's getting paid well and has a car to work a couple hours a week, really. And she felt really um, guilty about that. And yeah. she said in an underprivileged country where so many people don't yep. have that mm-hmm. opportunity and those yeah. blessings. And having as a kid, right, seen the hard way people are living, even yeah. in urban areas, right? And at this time, there's this sharp difference between the township, where if you were black or there were a lot of uh, immigrants from India that would have Indian townships, Again, it's sort of shut off, right? It's this mm-hmm. this ghetto. So she'd see the hard life right next to her, and she can't make sense of this. And that's actually one thing way back in the beginning of the Restoration, right, that Joseph Smith is very aware of. As he's reading about Enoch and his city, he has this longing for Zion and a place where these intense inequalities don't exist in the same way, where we reach out and serve each other. The world we live in isn't a celestial world. It's not the way it should work. Mm-hmm. So there's there's doctrinal things from her mom that have mm-hmm. caused her questions, but there's always, also sort of this, this longing to make the world different. Yeah, and she seems very connected to the spirit in that way. Yeah. I really appreciate that. And I, I loved how she when she first heard about the first vision and about Joseph Smith, do you remember what she said about Joseph Smith, what she loved about him and how she could relate? He was a farm boy. Yeah, she said said that her family, you could call them country bumpkins because she just said, I love my farm people. And so Mm -hmm. to her, hearing about Joseph Smith being this young farm boy and then relating to him, you know, wondering which church to join. Having looked for a church, and, and I feel like today sometimes not everybody can relate to having looked for a church the same way that she did and Joseph Smith can, but you can relate to those questions that drove her toward a church, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that, and, and she was so shocked that she's like, how can, like, how have I never heard of this church before? You right. know, her family is well-educated. They had all the subscriptions to the newspapers. They watched the news, you know, and she's like, how am I barely hearing about this? Right. So I thought that was right, right, right. interesting. Well, and she was so excited that she started telling all her family and friends and they were not, <laughs> did not share her excitement. <laughs> they right. sent her anti-Mormon uh, material and they even sent ministers to her house. And she just, she says repeatedly in the talk that she's very cheeky. She has these answers mm-hmm. that are very cheeky. And she just says to one of the ministers who says that, you know, the Mormon church, they're not Christian because they're not registered with the uh, WCC, which is the Worldwide Council of Churches. And she says, well, I was just reading in my Bible and I'm not sure. Can you tell me the chapter and verse where God (laughs) says that you have to be registered with the WCC to be Christian? And so she just has these answers and just from a very 
beginning has this faith to learn more and to, and to trust. And I think it's interesting to the earlier point that where she goes in the Bible is the epistle of James. That has this concern about what is lived religion, right? What's your obligation to God and to Christ as a disciple in terms of reaching out to others in service? Mm -hmm. So she feels this urgency about the restoration, and she feels this urgency about exercising discipleship, right? Across Mm -hmm. economic divides, finding real need and facing need instead of a job where she's just kind of going to people who are already doing okay, right? Mm-hmm. And that that message speaks to her, right? She she hears Christ's call in these words. And that's why a mission was so appealing to her. So yeah. a year after she was baptized, she talked to her state president about wanting to serve a mission. And two weeks later, she was in the mission field. And it's because of the Kosa language that she was able to speak. Yep. And so it's because of this man named Bishop Kawa that church headquarters was aware of. And he had actually got a hold, gotten a hold of some church materials years previously and started organizing the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Oh, Obviously, yeah. he didn't have the authority, but he just knew that the doctrine was true and was so excited about it that he actually had congregations uh, around the area. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is all right. And this is actually not super uncommon for people to have found the gospel on their own. Um, There's a story of a group in Soweto near Johannesburg who in the 1960s had found copies of the Book of Mormon and been meeting all the time and studying the Book of Mormon and just believed in it, right? The question is, how how do you bridge across this world between people coming from different backgrounds now sharing one faith? And I think even if you read the talk, Judy... Bester Brummer might be underselling her own contributions. I think um, so. <laughs> because, so again, in South Africa, you'd had different times as early as, I think, 1903 or 1905. You had people from the, the Zulu group, which is another of the native groups, who'd been really interested in promoting the gospel. But then, because of the way the church was set up at that time, they end up going, you know, we don't know what to do. There, there had been this priesthood ordination restriction that's part of it. I think beyond that, there's just, just misunderstanding. I think when we think of racial division in the United States today, people tend to think, they tend to associate, I don't know, sort of racism, racial prejudice with hate. Hmm. And more often, I think what, what happens is uncertainty and anxiety. We're just okay. not used to each other. We haven't spent time around each other, so we don't know what to do. And in that space of not knowing what to do, there's misunderstandings, there's prejudice, that sort of thing. So in South Africa, even after 1978, you see, so I mentioned that group who'd been studying the Book of Mormon since the Mm -hmm. 60s. What would happen with them is they'd say, we want to get baptized, and mission presidents would always be worried, "Uh, what's the government going to think if we start having mixed-race things? What are we going to do? So they keep keep contact, keep meeting with them, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't finish getting them baptized. And by the time one mission president was coming around, his time would be done, right? Now it's the next uh, president. You're, you're back to square one. When they go into the wards in Johannesburg, one thing you'll see early bishops doing sometimes is going, you know, we, we haven't had these black members. They're coming from different neighborhoods, from a different experience. Why don't we just have them take the discussions again? Well, what about again? Well, let's teach them about welfare too. And then we're adding all these things, right? Before you had leaders finally say, no, we've got to do this. Mm-hmm. 
So I think she comes in with not only the language skills to reach people, but an understanding of where they're coming from, right? An ability to sort of culturally translate and build trust between other church members and these excited newcomers. She feels that urgency where maybe if you've been in the church all your life, you go, oh, we got time. Mm-hmm. Let's do this right. She goes, no, let's do this now, right? Well, because she knows what it's like to not have the gospel and then right? to have it, and she's mm-hmm. ready to run with that. Right. And she, I, I want you to hear her voice. Let's listen to this experience, because I, like you said, I think she understates her role in this as a cultural bridge and as a religious bridge. Uh, so after meeting Bishop Kawa uh, and the, the congregations that he organized, she, she's not sure what to do because it's just her and her companion and a senior missionary couple. And so there's only one man who holds the priesthood and there's all these people wanting to get baptized. Uh, so listen, listen to her words. We baptized 30, 40, 50 people. I remember once we had 54 people ready for baptism and we only had a couple missionary and my companion and I. So there was one priesthood holder. So we had to phone East London and say, send up some elders because... It's not easy to baptize 54 people if you're an elderly gentleman. <laughs> yeah, I just thought that was cute. I laughed when I listened to that part, and I thought it was just cute. Just her personality. She's fun to listen to. Yeah, she is. Well, and then also, she, since there wasn't any really information in the language, Kosa, about the gospel, she was being called on to translate so many things in the Book of Mormon kind of on the fly. And so as they were teaching people and talk about it, she was just translating it verbally. And then with things like the sacrament prayers and the um, baptism prayer, she actually wrote it on paper so that it could be said, you know, the same way every time. And I just think this wasn't that long ago. I mean, this was only, what, 40-ish years ago that she was being called to to do these things. I thought um, when she was asked to you know, she had to translate people's sins. When I read that, I'm like, oh, I just can't even imagine when she talks about having to translate like witchcraft and murder. And she said, I tried to translate it so it sounded a little better. And her mission president said, if you don't say exactly how they say it, then the sins are on your head. And she said, I already have enough sins. I will translate it exactly how they say it. But what a big job. I mean, that'd be hard to kind of be that middle person relaying that message that's not easy, I thought. And I think it's really valuable to have a middle person, again, with some understanding, some sympathy, who's not going to exaggerate those differences either. Because sometimes, right, we're we're very good at recognizing practices that feel that feel different and being weirded out by them, and not so good at the things that we kind of take for granted that in the Lord's sight are not the way they should be, right? Mm-hmm. So again, when you're when you're bringing two cultures together, I think it's helpful to have somebody who can can help cement those bonds of trust and say, yeah, this this may be something unusual, but this isn't atypical. This is, there's a context for this. There's a way to understand it. So what I love about um, Judy, Judy Bester Brummer, she, you mentioned earlier her background and desire to be a social worker. And she, she wasn't that. She had that other job that we talked about. But how do you think her mission, this, this mission that she served for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, how do you think that filled her desire to help people? Yeah, I mean, she talks about this uh, some in the talk and her her feeling that as she's working with this large group of people, she can see changes in the way that they're building community, in the way they're benefiting from each other. 
And yeah, when, when you look at the problems in the world, it's not all just material. <laughs> when you're in poverty, there's psychological effects, right? It kind of wears down on you. We talk sometimes about social capital in history, which is sort of your wealth of relationships, right? Who can you depend on? Who can you go to? And I think she, as a missionary, and other missionaries in general, right, you're able to see this sort of like spiritual and psychological power, these these relationships as people come together in the gospel, really enrich and transform people, right? So she's not able to to deal in a direct way with the poverty that she's felt so self-conscious about, but indirectly, right? She's giving people a recipe to change the circumstances of their lives and and that Zion vision she was drawn to. And along with what you were saying, James, let's listen to a quote uh, from Judy. I remember one of my favorite scriptures is found in John chapter 8, verse 32. It says, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth as taught by the missionaries of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That is the best truth you can possibly have. That is the best freedom you can possibly have. I remember telling these African people, you might be oppressed under apartheid, but you now have the priesthood. You now have the greatest freedom on earth. Yeah, and I, I liked the part where she's talking about the Kosa people and how much she loves them, and she says every time one of them would get the priesthood, I would look at this little 12-year-old boy and I would say to him, do you know that you have more authority than most ministers that are famous and recognized on the earth? I love that. Yeah, and I think in a society, you know, and this isn't restricted to South Africa. I don't, I don't, I don't want people right. to feel like we're saying, oh, that was so bad. This happens everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. But there are groups in any society who we end up making feel like we're, we're suspicious of them, right? They're not really going to succeed, that sort of thing. So to have this gospel truth that grounds you in the sense that you're a child of God, that you're a disciple of Christ, that you can exercise a power in that discipleship, whether it's through priesthood or, or other means through the church as a, as a member of Relief Society ministering, right? She, she had that vision when she first went and saw Relief Society in action. Yeah. That had meant so much to her. And I think, you know, again, if, if the world's kind of beating you down, this is a message that helps rebuild you, lift you up, and give you a sense of possibility. And certainly, as I've spent time with South African church history, there's a lot of young men who felt like when they found the church, that, you know, in the church, sometimes from church members, they'd be hearing those same negative messages were people, but they'd also be grounded in these these sort of deeper truths and find other people who were willing to to see them through that spiritual lens. And it made all the difference for them. Yes, thank you so much for sharing that. So I would love to conclude with a recording of Judy sharing her testimony because as she's sharing her testimony, she also translates it into Kosa. So you can, the listeners can get kind of a sense of that. I think that's a really important part of her personality and her talk and and the power that she has too as she's speaking about her experiences. So let's hear from her. I'd like to leave you my testimony that I know that God can do anything, anywhere, anytime, that he is almighty, that he loves us with an infinite love. 
I know that Jesus is the Christ, that he atoned for my large sins and your little sins equally. I know that the Holy Ghost witnesses truth to hearts of human beings. I know that this is the Lord's work. I felt the passion that Moroni had when he said we're going to be triumphant in these last days and that we need to take the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And we need to prepare this earth before our Savior returns. Yeah, why do you think this, this discourse and this fireside was included in At the Pulpit? So At the Pulpit is a collection of talks from women that, that deal with, I don't know, sort of key doctrinal issues. Some of them are there partly because they're also of historical interest in terms of representing different times or places. We've got mm-hmm. South Africa here. But I think the biggest reason is these, these fundamental themes of the gospel show up in the way that, um, that Judy Brummer talks about her life experience. And so we understand the gospel better when we've got these different witnesses with very specific life experience that that helps them get a sense of what a gospel principle means. And Katie, you mentioned just loving, listening to this talk and reading this talk. What did you learn from Judy Bester-Brummer? Um, I, honestly, I was just thinking of um, one of the first things she says in the beginning of her talk is, does our Father in Heaven prepare a way ahead of time or is this all random coincidence? And so like listening to her life, it nothing was coincidence. I feel like everything was set in place for what she needed to to fulfill the things that she accomplished in her life. Yeah, and I think that's that's interesting in that sometimes when you're the first one in your family to join the church, right? It can feel like this is a beginning. And yet she doesn't see her conversion as the beginning, right? With this idea that that the Lord was working in early she's got kind of a spiritual history that extends back in into her mother's life even, right? And the way her mother's family situation allowed her to get education that allowed Judy to have a different childhood that all built, not to just her own life, right? But to making her an instrument in God's hands for mm-hmm. this moment in time to help bring the gospel to a different group uh, with the Kosa people. And there is so much in this talk that that we didn't get to talk about. And one of the major things is that she actually was asked to translate major portions of the Book of Mormon into Kosa. And so mm-hmm. that's such a huge part of her life and uh, the history of the church that we don't, that a lot of people don't know about. So if you haven't read this talk or listened to it, stop what you're doing after you're done listening to this <laughs> and go listen to it. Uh, I had, I really enjoyed Um, talking about Judy today and uh, hearing a little bit more about the context of of her life. So thank you so much, James and Katie, for sharing your experiences and and your insight. And you can listen to this talk or read it. It's, It's included in At the Pulpit, which is on your Gospel Library app, and it's also available at churchhistorianspress.org. I'm your host, Shailen Back. Thanks for listening. 